Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 43, The Philadelphia Story. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, we are planning a few big things to close out our first season. We're planning on releasing episodes on the following movies before the end of the year yet. Apollo 13, Chinatown, Mr. Roberts, My Fair Lady, Iron Man, Home Alone, and Casablanca. We also have a few exciting things in store for Season 2, so if you haven't already, make sure you've subscribed on whichever podcast platform you use. If you like what we do, please give us a great rating so that you can help us grow the show with each episode. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss The Philadelphia Story? I am. And you're all stocked up on Dad Juice? Yes. Yes. All right. So, basic plot summary. This classic romantic comedy focuses on Tracy Lord, played by Katherine Hepburn, Philadelphia socialite who has split from her husband, C.K. Dexter Haven, played by Cary Grant, both to his drinking and to her overly demanding nature. As Tracy prepares to wed the wealthy George Kittredge, played by John Howard, she crosses paths with both Dexter and prying reporter Macaulay Connor, played by James Stewart. Unclear about her feelings for all three men, Tracy must decide whom she truly loves. This movie was nominated for Outstanding Production for Joseph Mankiewicz, Best Director for George Cukor, Best Actress for Katherine Hepburn, and Supporting Actress for Ruth Hussey. It won for Best Actor James Stewart and Best Writing Screenplay. At the 1940 Academy Awards, uh, just so that uh, we can fill you in on the Wikipedia entry for this one, James Stewart won for Best Actor and Donald Ogden Stewart for Best Writing Screenplay. James Stewart did not expect to win and was not planning to attend the ceremony, but he was called and advised to show up in a dinner jacket. He said he had voted for Henry Fonda for his performance in The Grapes of Wrath and always felt the award had been given to him as compensation for his not winning for his portrayal of Jefferson Smith in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington the previous year. All right. Uh, this movie was also recognized on the 1998 AFI 100 list as number 51. It was again recognized on the uh, 10th anniversary list of the AFI 100 in 2007 as number 44 on their list. It also then was recognized by the AFI as the number five romantic comedy of all time, and it is a National Film Registry entrant in 1995. So, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, let's see. It's one of those movies that I'd always heard about, and um, when I'd watch interviews with Jimmy Stewart, he would always talk about the film once in a while, or wouldn't, you know, more or less. Hadn't seen it until about, oh, I'd say 10 years ago I watched it for the first time. Um, and since then, I think this is now the third or fourth time I've watched it. I think, if I remember right, this is only the second time I've seen it. Uh, it was one of those that was uh, in my pursuit of trying to watch the um, AFI 100 list. And so, obviously, it was one I was trying to cross off at some point or another. I think I watched it within the last two years. And then I obviously rewatched it for the show, as we do every week. But... It's not one that I had necessarily a strong connection to. It was one I enjoyed through the first viewing. And so I, I thought there was a certain classicness. You put three of the uh, biggest 
I guess, classic Hollywood actors together. And that's really, if anything, what it's kind of notable for, that all three of these people were together in a story that eventually kind of got remade. Uh, we also watched the, uh, I don't know if you call it a spinoff or uh, a based upon or whatever, but uh, High Society, which was remade with Sinatra and Bing Crosby and uh, Grace Kelly at a different point, is basically the musical version of this. And so we've also seen that one as well. And I think to a certain degree, there are a lot of uh, similar story structures to this, um, kind of using this as a background or a basis. So this is kind of one of those really classic Hollywood movies that you kind of look back fondly upon. But I, I wouldn't say that I have like a great personal relationship to this movie. By the way, you mentioned the three stars and uh, actually – uh, Grant and Stewart were not originally the per, the two actors that uh, Catherine Hepburn wanted to play these parts. She wanted uh, Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. Uh, Tracy was already booked, so he couldn't, and Clark Gable refused to work with George Kukar again after Kukar was working on Gone with the Wind and was fired. All right, so what is this movie about? I'll give you first crack. Well, it's kind of a uh, poking a little bit at high society. Um, it's loosely based upon a real uh, person that um, that the uh, author knew um, when he created the story and uh, created the play. The play it's, or itself, which predated the movie, was created as a play specifically to star Catherine Hepburn. I mean, they, they talk about the society pages. People in that element of the, uh, in New York and in Boston and Philadelphia and such, the wealthy were always looked at as, as like celebrities. And most newspapers had a society page where they talked about what was going on, who was having a party, who was in attendance at the party, who was having a coming out party. And so there was a kind of a, a voyeur aspect to this that uh, the average person kind of um, looked at as a celebrity. It was, it, it was kind of a day or a time when the Kardashians were before the Kardashians were. And okay, that's the context of the film, but that's not what this is about. Well, it is, because ultimately what it is about is, is that Hepburn is kind of a freewheeling uh, soci or a socialite who doesn't want to live within convention, wants to do her own thing, and for the most part... Um, Magazines are enthralled by her, and the readers are enthralled by her, and so they're trying to spy on her behavior and her wedding and all of that surrounding it. Again, I would say that's the superficial context angle of the thing. First off, I don't relate to that, because for what you're informing the audience of, I certainly wouldn't have gotten that. So I, I do think that provides some necessary context to the entrance point for this film. This That part of it does not age well. The gossip rags and the rest of that, it, it 
I, I don't know. It, it feels dated in the way they went about it, and Spy Magazine and that whole aspect of it, even though there are elements that are still modern, as you put it, with it would just be supplied by, like, People Magazine would be swapped out or something, which still has some relevance. But that's not what this movie is about. What this movie is about is what a marriage should be based on. I mean, this is the so-called, if you want to put it in quotes, the comedy of remarriage uh, that got around the Hayes Act, and this is probably the most notable example of it. And I would say it's also the rigors of both finding the right person to partner with, as well as becoming the right person. I mean, there's a certain quality to this movie where uh, she gets married to Cary Grant's character, or Catherine Hepburn gets married to Cary Grant's character, and the first go-round, she's not the right type of person, and neither is he, to be in a committed relationship to have a long-standing marriage. And neither of them understands what they need to be in order to do that. Now, when you have the new entrance point, Cary Grant has worked on himself to the point where he understands or he feels he understands what that is. And so he plays this above-it-all kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, puppet master of sorts? He always feels like, sure, but he always feels like he's playing the angle behind the scenes and he's just nudging Catherine Hepburn just in the right ways to get her to eventually um, come to the ending of the film as the way it is. Now, we're obviously going to spoil the ending, but I'm not going to preempt that quite yet. So we give people a little bit more of a chance if they haven't seen this movie. Again, it's on HBO Max. So if you haven't seen the film, go and watch that and then come back and uh, listen to the rest of our review. But ultimately, Catherine Hepburn has to go through this whole uh, experience, more or less, through the periphery of trying to marry somebody else that she's clearly not meant to be with, uh, which I'm going to be addressing later in order to become the person she needs to be in order to uh, be in that type of committed relationship. I think there's a much deeper level of this than people would give it credence for. For a romantic comedy, and what a lot of these are based on, and I know we usually hammer on the romantic comedy and these romantic films, but they do have a much deeper relationship level than people give them credit for. Well, I understand. To that extent, I do agree because um, it, a lot of it, and one of the scenes that I'm sure we'll be talking about is her com- or conversation with her father regarding his departure because that is just, that scene is so uh, intellectually insightful that um, it was way ahead of its time. Yeah, we're definitely going to be discussing that. I have it grouped in a collection of scenes because it, it's one of three consecutive scenes where she has uh, important conversations with all of the men in her life, and it basically breaks her down. And so I, I have that as a collection because it goes from uh, Dexter to George to Seth, her father, and all three of them basically destroy her confidence and all of the pillars of which she's built her personality upon. But we'll get to that in a second. So, before we do, who is your best performer? Uh, Cary Grant. 
Okay. He just had a knack for having almost a naughty, you know, he half the time he'd deliver his lines and had this sly little smile. Like, he knows he's just being a naughty little boy and uh, trying to just stir up trouble. It's kind of this innocence look that he keeps having on his face, even though he has been characterized as being the uh, actor in the whole movie who had probably the uh, least uh, critical review. I thought his performance was very subtle and uh, well done. He plays a multitude of different roles. This is very one where he gets to be kind of the puppet master, as I mentioned before, unlike a lot of his other roles where he's a lot more vulnerable and things are happening to him. Uh, there are some movies that we're bringing into this conversation that we haven't reviewed yet. So uh, bringing up Baby, another one he did with Catherine, Hef- or Catherine Hepburn uh, before this, a couple of years before, another one of these quote-unquote uh, comedies of remarriage, more or less, is kind of along the same lines where she's a klutz and everything keeps happening to him. Whereas this movie, he's kind of driving all of the subtleties and all of the uh, weird actions that seem to be going on in order to kind of mastermind the this plan in order to get the girl in the end. And I think to a certain extent, you mentioned this uh, half smile. We kind of mentioned it on last week's episode with Goldfinger that it's kind of that James Bond, Sean Connery um, Cheshire Cat grin. <clears throat> yes, the half smile. Uh, my best performer, though, was Catherine Hepburn. I think by far in this movie, she was given the most to do. All of the action revolved around her character, and the way she had to go from um, almost embittered lover and this weird era of like confidence, uh, like unshakable confidence to uh, the vulnerability of everyone attacking her all at once to her shattered confidence and then trying to find it again to eventually um, this moment of honesty and clarity that she has to get at the end of the film, I think there's so much of an emotional swing that she has to go through, and it could have been overplayed. To me, it's almost a crime she didn't end up winning Best Actress for this. All right, I I, I understand, and that would have been probably my second choice, but I, I just didn't want to take the obvious. And that's fair. Uh, I think the obvious, though, probably would have been Jimmy Stewart, given his win on this one. But And so let's kind of subvert into best secondary performance. Uh, I had Cary Grant on that one. And part of the reason was is I enjoyed the writing from this movie. I thought that deserved it. I enjoyed Cary Grant. I enjoyed Catherine Hepburn. This has to be the shallowest... James Stewart performance, I think I can remember. For all of the great movies that he's been a part of, even in um, what is the Capra movie that won Best Picture and was like his first big film, you can't take it with you. Yes. But you think of all the great Jimmy Stewart portrayals. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 
Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Even some of the westerns that he was a part of. You and I both love the man who shot Liberty Valance. He has such a great everyman portrayal and his vulnerabilities there. I don't get any of the classic Jimmy Stewart that is much bigger that is part of those performances, but that is not a part of this one. To me, this is the equivalent of Al Pacino winning for Ascent of a Woman. <laughs> yeah, okay. Al Pacino has possibly one of the best decades of films up there with like Tom Hanks in the 90s and Spencer Tracy of the 30s, um, maybe Bing Crosby in the 40s, that type of thing where uh, they just have this huge run of great films. Burt Lancaster of the like uh, late 50s, early 60s, There, there's a, like a decade of just pure greatness. And he doesn't once get an Oscar nomination. So, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. I take that back. I think he got an Oscar nomination. He didn't win one. So who did you have down as your best secondary performer? I had Stuart. Okay, so undo everything I just said. I just thought there was some subtlety to it. He he at times has been kind of the wise acre in films. He's done a few films that I've liked. I just thought it was a different role for him in general. And that's why I, I went that route. Almost to the level of being kind of a smart aleck. And that, that presentation um, kind of has uh, appeared multiple times. Uh, what was the, there was a film he did, uh, where he was a newspaper reporter and I can't remember. All North Side 777. Yep. Um, he was kind of a smart aleck in that film. He was kind of, or the same thing goes as how he was treating, uh, Grace Kelly and, uh, Rear Window and such. So I think this was out of the norm for him and required more acting for him. So. I have a different take. I just, I, I look at the all-star performances that were seemingly all over the place in this movie, and I just, I, I've seen him in a lot better roles. Let's just say that. All right, who's your most charismatic? Hepburn. It was clear that she was uh, destined to be a, a star. It just took the right vehicle to launch her career. Up until this point, she had been considered. In fact, she won a contest among movie theater owners. They took a poll. Who was, who was considered box office poison? And she was poison. So she looked for a role that would specifically launch her career. Um, she did the Broadway play. In the play itself, she uh, did not take a salary in the Broadway production. She took a percentage of the box office and that percentage of the box office equates in today's dollars to something like four million dollars for doing the play she did this movie in fact she bought the movie rights or couldn't afford to buy the movie rights originally so her then lover uh howard hughes bought them for her and gave it to her she sold it to uh MGM for $250,000 and had or maintained control of the film. So to that extent, she kind of had her selection of who was going to direct, 
who is going to uh, work on the script, who is going to be uh, her co-stars in the film. She ultimately shined through as being bigger than the screen itself. I'm going to go a little off the beaten path. I'm going to go with Virginia Weedler, who played the girl Dinah. Okay. Every time it seemed like they needed some level of comedic relief or they needed a, a cheap laugh or something that was just slightly entertaining to take it out of the sullenness of parts of this film, she'd pop up just in time to do something kind of silly or goofy. And it was just her entire character was entertaining and engaging. And I just enjoyed every time she popped up. She didn't do too much after this. She had been a child star. This was kind of a film in transition. Ultimately, she retired because of health reasons. In fact, she died of heart disease at age 41. That's rather tragic. Yes. Okay, uh, let's go to best scene. What do you want to nominate first? Uh, The opening scene uh, between Cary Grant and... Uh, Catherine Hepburn, um, where they're, she's breaking his golf clubs and throwing stuff at him, and he ends up ultimately pushing her down. Doesn't age well? No. But it it did kind of set the, the foundation for the rest of the film. Frankly, it's a trope that has been redone I don't know how many times. The bad breakup at the beginning of a rom-com where, so that the uh, main character ends up being single before they meet the exact right person they're supposed to. Apparently Hepburn and Grant had a lot of fun with this. Hepburn so much enjoyed Grant pushing her down that they did that take about four or five times. So what's your next nominee? Uh, the scene leading up to the assignment going from where Stuart and Hussey are talking and then go to um, um, drawing a blank to the, the publisher's Nate or office. Ed. Yeah, and the scene is they're talking back and forth about this, and you can see Cary Grant following behind, again with that sly, or sly little smile because he knows what's going on, um, and he's right behind them through the, as they're walking into the office. And then ultimately, he gets brought in, and what their assignments are are indicated. Okay, my next one is going to be the scene we've kind of already discussed, but I, I'm just going to kind of work my way through it. So it's really three scenes, and it's more of a sequence. But essentially, you get Dexter's conversation with Tracy, where he opens up that she or takes herself so seriously to put herself on a certain pedestal, and that's how she defines all of her relationships. Then she's given uh, the conversation with George where he points out that's exactly how he treats her and how he sees her. And then finally the conversation she has with her father who basically insinuates you are an uncaring, you don't have an understanding or empathetic heart. And thus, you might as well be statuesque. His exact comment is made of bronze. But it's essentially, I've seen this a lot with 
uh, different women where they have this perception of themselves. Well, frankly, it, it's in general. I, I won't even coordinate off to women to in you know for the sake of being again potentially accused as being a sexist by you i think this is a general thing where somebody has built their entire understanding or their identity of themselves how they feel themselves to be and then you have such a short period of time where three important people three important figures of your life not necessarily in how you give them importance, but that they have a important place within your life, whether you choose that or not. So the guy you're going to marry, your ex-husband, and your father. I mean, there aren't three bigger figures in your life than possibly those three. And all three of them seem to agree in some semblance that you're a cold, uncaring person who wants to put yourself within this, um, I think the comment is, virginal state. <laughs> and thus, her yeah. complete confidence and everything about her that she's understood or placed her identity upon becomes rattled. And I, I've seen that multiple times with people. It's happened to me where you kind of retreat within yourself. Your entire identity is shaken, thus you have no confidence whatsoever moving forward through the world, and you start to reach out in rather desperate straits, thus setting up the action of the second act of the film, where she starts clinging on to Mike, who's this fawning personality over what she is and could be. And he starts to help her rebuild the identity that she wants. Even though I would say there's some problems with how his character interacts with her eventually and how she ends up by the end of the movie. But because of the importance and how wonderfully well written, uh, there are several different instances of this that I'm going to take for nominees for best lines. And I this is a movie that you wouldn't think has got a lot of best lines, but I've got a ton of nominees for this one. All three of these scenes that make up this sequence have nominees within them that I'm going to recognize because the writing in this, it, for this being basically the heart or the middle of the movie, the climax of that first act, is so wonderfully written that it needs its own recognition. I also nominate the swimming pool scene. So I kind of called that the night before, and I take that as a little bit larger, unless, do you mean the one with the boat? No, I'm talking about Stuart and Hepburn drunk, and they decide to take a swim, and... Okay, because they're not actually in the pool. They're just kind of, it, it alludes to it. So let, let's just go with that as the night before. But why did that, why is that a nominee for you? Well, I think it really puts people in, in a vulnerable position. It kind of, for whatever reason, alcohol has a tendency to um, put people into a uh, natural state. <clears throat> they're normal behavior and who they really are sometimes comes out it it takes away the uh facade of that people try to build 
and you become what you really are. There's an old saying that I will refer to here that may explain exactly your point. Uh, there's nobody more honest than a drunk person or a kid. <laughs> and to a certain extent, I think both of them are very much in this realm, but they were equally vulnerable coming in. You know, Stuart is a very hardened, proud, um, snarky person throughout it, it, especially the first part of this movie. I mean, I didn't nominate it as a line for early on, but the scene where uh, they get their assignment that you already referenced above, they're talking to the editor, Mr. Kidd, and you must hate me a lot, don't you, Macaulay? Well, I don't hate you, sir, but I certainly don't like you very much. I mean, who says that to their boss if they're not somehow kind of an asshole? But by the time they get to that point, he's in such a daze of sorts that he's kind of become infatuated with Tracy that his vulnerability and inhibitions have gone by the wayside and he engages in this weird night tryst. Do you have any other nominees? I really enjoy the uh, scene with uh, where she introduces uh, Uncle Willie as da- or as father, and then father as Uncle Willie. I just think that it's kind of a cute little scene again of trying to put on airs so that you can save face. That sometimes. It's not necessarily the reality as much as it is the perception. Yeah, I honestly think they do a better job of playing around with that role and that moment in high society because they actually see that whole thing through, as opposed to this is kind of a throwaway to a certain extent in this version where they they do eventually reveal, oh yeah, well this is... I'm actually the father, and he's Uncle Willie, and we were just putting on this whole ruse for you. Whereas, and I think in high society, it plays out a lot longer that they try and put on the ruse, if I remember correctly. So I I actually think that that makes a little bit more sense than kind of uh, undermining the, the aspect of the reporter relationship and that they actually knew what was going on the whole time. I don't know. It's the one piece that kind of oddly sticks out in this whole movie, other than one other part that I'm going to have for a remaining question. All right. All right. So I had the last scene, though, Uh, the wedding. Obviously, they're not going to go through with the wedding, but uh, by the time we get to that point, you already hear the wedding music, and everybody's already in the house and ready to go and all of this other stuff. When I tried to remember back to having seen this the first time, really the only thing that I remembered and why it's going to end up being my most indelible moment was the ending. I remembered exactly how it ended. And because of you're led to believe, all right, so she's probably not going to marry George, but there's that moment of tension where she's kind of trying to make up her mind. All right, so now we've moved on from George. The next possible suitor is Mike. Okay, well, Mike's out. Well, what's left and what are they going to do? Oh, we're going to just somehow throw it to Dexter, and he's uh, completed the circle of his master plan that he's had 
uh, subtly the whole time going on. And I think it really works the first time. It didn't work nearly as well once you know the ending, but that first time is kind of special in how this kind of works itself out. And so I, I do think this is a indelible moment and a pretty well-played scene for how they have to pay off pretty much the majority of the movie. Well, I actually thought something a little different, which is the first time, yes, it's kind of a cute scene and ultimate, but the second time watching through or the third time watching through, I'm picking up the subtleties of what she's saying and to why she's not going with Mike and why she's going with Dexter. And I think it actually has more meaning and more value subsequently uh, and not the first time because you are paying more attention to the lines themselves and trying to understand what's going on in the with the lines, what the intent is. Well, I mean, she, you know, it's, it's clear that she's thought this through and her feelings are coming through and she understands that even though she's got some feelings for Mike, it's ultimately not going to be uh, productive or fruitful. And so then all of a sudden it's to Dexter and she it, like all of a sudden rekindles and she realizes what she gave up and the feelings she had for him to begin with that were poisoned by behavior, conduct. I mean, they talk about it. Everything from the from the ship they were on, or the boat, or I guess it would be a ship because it was on the ocean, um, that they yeah. were on, leading to their, on their honeymoon. They're looking back on their relationship. You know, hindsight being, you, know, you tend to only remember the good things, the bad things. Really, they didn't, dwell on as much other than the animosity that claimed through when he first shows up and her reluctance to allow him to even participate or be there for her wedding i would say it's the difference and i'll bring it back around to what this movie's about it's the difference between that initial period of infatuation that a lot of relationship experts will tell you about and then when you get into the true commitment portions of a relationship She's basically insinuating that by your understanding of it. And I, I guess thinking back on it, it, it makes uh, a lot more sense. But that Mike essentially is an infatuation or a fleeting moment, but he's not somebody that she's going to connect with as a partner-level commitment relationship that she needs in order to have a successful marriage, whereas she realizes in that moment that she already had that, but she was not ready in order to uh, make that relationship work. I, I, I think I understand exactly where you're going with this, and I can understand that. I mean, I see that in relationships. There's just, there are certain things women need or require to make themselves, well, and the same can be said for men. There's a certain foundation that you need in order to build upon to improve yourself or to find more identity or to grow. That's the whole concept of what makes a relationship work or a marriage work is the ability to allow each other to grow well, uh, and I based think on it, that relationship. It's very similar to how 
most people, uh, you know, most people with experience would tell you you need to date a lot of different people. It's like trying on a bunch of different shoes. Only one is probably going to fit. What I'm essentially trying to put down is, is that very rarely is the first relationship you enter going to be the one that ultimately is successful because not only do you have to find the right fit, and this is where his analogy of the shoe breaks down a little bit, but you also have to – your foot has to conform a bit to the shoe. You have to evolve as a person. And you're not a complete version when you usually start dating to the point where you actually commit to a long-term relationship. And much in the same way, we get that here. All right, so out of these, what is the best scene? Probably the concluding scene in the wedding. I'm going to go with the sequence that I talked about before. I, I just think that that is more central to the action of this movie and how it kind of defines itself because it drives basically the night before scene that we nominated as well as then leads us into the conclusion. And I think from a writing standpoint, it works incredibly well. What is your favorite scene, however? Um, the three pieces you've just discussed, but specifically the scene between Tracy and her father, Seth, because... All right, so it was on my list as my favorite yeah. as well. Why is it for you? And maybe it's the fact that I've watched it now as a middle-aged man, you know, because, like, he talks about why do middle-aged men want to run off with younger women? You know, it's because they start realizing they're, you know, that they're older and they want to feel young and they want to recapture their youth and... He just makes so many comments, and his relationship with his daughters, be, again, being a middle-aged man with two grown daughters, you just, it, there's a certain aspect of it that just rang true to me. The way, or the reason that it was the favorite to me is it's the one that gave me the most reaction out of any particular scene in this movie, because... The minute he basically insinuates that it's not his fault for his infidelities, it's his daughter's, I'm like, you, dude, you are so full of shit. Right now, you are just making it up uh, after the fact to justify how poor of a human being you are. And then causing her to thus, it's the equivalent of, what is it, the... Um, negative comments or the negative compliments that we give women to basically make them fawn over us because they need our approval. It's that. <laughs> Dude, you are a messed up individual if you're you're doing that to your fucking daughter. What a asshole. I mean, come on. That but similarly, the way that scene really works because it you have to take it in context of the other two scenes of the sequence that she's had her identity shaken, and now he's driving home the last stake into her complete and utter implosion of self. And I, I think the way that Hepburn plays the scene is just extraordinary. She has this um, vulnerability, yet this sarcasm that's there at the beginning, and by the end of it, it's just this almost desperation of that you can 
see how little uh, she believes in herself any longer and how shaken she is to her very core. But there's another aspect to that scene that you're missing, which is that to some extent, it's not necessarily the justification, but he's... Her lack of empathy, her, you know, the fact that she's so judgmental about it, you know, instead of, I didn't miss that. It's clearly there. I'm not arguing with that portion of it, but the way he even brings it up as a topic clouds his entire thing. You can say true things for the wrong reasons. Okay. His observations are no less true. They're just simply from a, a really bad place. It's like in a movie where you have the really abusive mother who makes some comment that uh, undermines their child but ultimately uh, drives at their core problem. Yeah, it's coming from a bad so uh, source, but ultimately it doesn't make it not true. So, most indelible moment. I've already given mine. It's the ending because that's just the thing I remembered most from the first viewing. But what did you have down? I had the scene that we just talked about is the conversation between her and her father. To me, that there were so many things that were poignant and then so many things as, well, as you said. I mean, you know, trying to justify behavior. There's a lot of that that goes on in society and, and in life in general um, that's not merited. Yeah, I certainly understand that. All right, this sounds like a good spot to take a quick break. We will be right back. Welcome back. Let's jump right into best lines. So I already mentioned that I have quite a few of them to go through here. So uh, the first one I'm going to nominate, uh, just because it's kind of a cheeky line. Dexter, orange juice? Certainly. Don't tell me you've forsaken your beloved whiskey and whiskeys. No, 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 no. I've just changed their color. That's all. I'm going for the pale pastel shades now. They're more becoming to me. How about you, Mr. Connor? You don't drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Oh, a little. A little? Little? And you a writer. I thought all writers drank to excess and beat their wives. You know, one time I think I secretly wanted to become a writer. My, uh, cadence is getting better on Cary Grant, but my impression is terrible. Yes. Anyway, what's your first, uh, nominee? Some, or, uh, Dexter, uh, sometimes, uh, for your sake, Red, I think you should have stuck to me longer. Uh, Tracy, I thought it was for life, but the nice judge gave me a full pardon. Ah, uh, that, the old Red, or that's the old Redhead. No bitterness, no recrimination. Just a good swift left to the jaw. There's so many good repartee lines. Uh, since we mentioned it as... Uh, often as we did. I'm just going to go right into my other one. Seth Lord. What most wives fail to realize is that their husband's philandering has nothing whatever to do with them. Tracy Lord. Then what has it to do with? A reluctance to grow old, I think. I suppose the best mainstay a man can have as he gets along in his years is a daughter. 
the right kind of daughter. <laughs> Along that line, you have everything it takes to make a lovely woman except the one essential, an understanding heart. And without that, you just might as well be made of bronze. Tracy, the time to make up your mind about people is never. Connor, champagne's funny stuff. I'm used to whiskey. Whiskey is a slap on the back, and champagne's heavy mist before my eyes. Not a bad description. Tracy, you hardly know him. C.K. Dexter, to hardly know him is to know him well. Do you have another one? Uh, George, you're like a mar or some marvelous distant well queen, I guess. You're so cool and fine and always so much your own. There's a kind of beauty, purity about you, Tracy. Like, like a statue, George. Oh, it's grand, Tracy. It's what everybody feels about you. It's what I first worshipped you uh, for up from afar. I don't want to be worshipped. I want to be loved. Yeah. If that's not the best line, uh, this might be my nominee. Not interested in yourself? You're fascinated, Red. You're far and away your favorite person in the world. Dexter, in case you don't know it. Of course, Mr. Connor. She's a girl who's generous to a fault. To a fault, Mr. Connor. Except to other people's faults. For instance, she never had any understanding of my deep and gorgeous thirst. That was your problem. Granted. But you took on that problem when you took on me, Red. You were no help there. You were a scold. It was disgusting. It made you so unattractive. A weakness, sure, and strength is her religion, Mr. Connor. She finds human imperfection unforgivable, and when I gradually discovered that my relationship to her was supposed to be not that of a loving husband and a good companion, but... Oh, never mind. Say it. But that of a kind of high priest to a virgin goddess. Then my drinks grew deeper and more frequent. That's all. Any others? Uh, no. Not offhand. So I'm going to, the first one I will refer to as the orange juice line, uh, I will nominate as our funniest line. Okay. Uh, even if um, it kind of insinuates, um, let's say, wife beating. Uh, <laughs> I'll go with my last line for honorable mention. Uh, but the line you read of, I don't want to be worshipped, I want to be loved, I think that's probably the summation line, and probably the one that drives at the heart of what this movie really is. I'd like both of your answers. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you, because I really don't have anything that really resonates with me as much. Your feigning agreement is, uh, you ready to move to our Stanley rubric? That is fine. What do you have down for legacy? Uh, I think that this scene, or several of the scenes in here, have so much play. I mean, I just remembered seeing a commercial not too long ago where the scene is, is he's down below in like a Volkswagen and she's throwing all of his crap out the window. And it all pertains back to this original scene. So to that extent, I gave it a 9 because I think there's so many scenes and pieces in this that have transcended into common culture 
and into oh, the whole genre of rom-coms? I don't think there's anything particularly special about this movie that would give it a huge legacy score like that. I understand your point, and I do think that you can draw some lines, but they're a little bit more jagged than straight. And while rom-coms as a genre currently have a lot of things that you can draw from the early ones like this, which were a little bit better made and are much more classic, I don't think that any one of them directly like was the big one that you can point to that says this is where everything else is established from. This is kind of a line of similar films that were kind of all coming out about the time. And I think this is, again, you want to take some of the Capra films. Uh, it Happened One Night has a lot of similarness to this. Uh, we reviewed Roman Holiday has a lot of similarities to this. There, There isn't anything necessarily that stands out. The only reason I bumped it up a little is that it had uh, a long stage performance. They remade this movie into radio teleplays uh, a couple of different times. And the fact that they made a musical out of this that also got its own production and was remade. So it had some legs on that one. But you also just say the Philadelphia story to anybody generally at this point. They're going to think you're talking about the Tom Hanks movie from 1993. <laughs> well, but even you pointed out, because Roman Holiday was 15 years after this film was released. 13. Okay, so call me a liar for two years. I didn't say you were a liar. I said you were mistaken. Ah, well, such subtleties. Uh, haven't you made your entire career off of that, Counselor? Sustained. All right, so anyway, I haven't given an official score. I went with a seven. All right. So that, if you average out the two, that'll be an eight for us collectively. Impact significance, I'll, I'll go first on this one. Again, I think this kind of got lost in and amongst several other films of the time. We mentioned that there are a lot of other rom-coms that you could compare this to. This is one of a series of Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant stars that, I think this was the third or fourth film that they'd done together of these kind of rom-com genres. And kind of in short succession, they were all late 30s, early 40s. So I don't think that that by itself had any particular draw. This is probably the best of them and the best uh, made. And it drew in James Stewart, who obviously added a, another layer to what this was. Other than the fact that it was nominated for some things, but it wasn't like the best picture winner when they had a little bit different clarification on what it was for recognition at the time. And the fact that this was only like the third best grossing movie of that year, which you'd think this was going to be a much more popular film. Uh, I don't know. I, I forgot to look who were the two films that performed above it, but I gave it a 5.5. I just don't think there's anything impactful or significant about this movie in context. I actually had it as a 5 because... I just, uh, same, same ilk. It's, it's about middle of the road for uh, a film of this quality from that time frame 
going forward, it's about average, which is a five. I mean, that's not to say that we don't like this movie. It's a very good movie. But when we're judging it based on these criteria, it's going to be different. And that's where we're trying to draw things out. So novelty, again, this was kind of one of these movies of a certain sub-genre that were all being made around the same time. So I can't say that it was particularly novel. Now, looking at several of these other ones, and it did give the subgenre the name the comedy of the remarriage the only one that i can really tell that uh truly was a remarriage type of story is this one so i think it did give it kind of that name of the subgenre in that context uh because some of the other ones they pointed to are not necessarily remarriage ones per se but other than bringing in the note of the high society uh, background, the journalistic thing, which this is before his Girl Friday that Cary Grant also made about a, a newspaper or a press person. I, I just don't see anything particularly novel-ish. Uh, this does have a lot of discussion about alcoholism, although it's much more subtle and kind of like cheekily hinted at. This talks about divorce and a, a lot of other things that are kind of novel subjects of the time. So to put those all in context of a comedy is a little bit daring for the time and the way they kind of subverted the Hayes Code. So I ultimately gave it a six, but I thought that was actually much more favorable than I thought I would initially go. Well, some of the lines and the, the interplay, the father uh, or Seth and, yeah. and uh, Tracy... That that was kind of uh, cutting edge for thinking about relationships and the psychology and all that. So I actually went just a bit higher. I went to 6.5 for that reason because okay. there's certain aspects that was more intellectual than what a lot of film was. But I couldn't go any higher because, I mean, basically high society had been put on a pedestal and subject to ridicule and... and uh, kind of a voyeuristic attitude for, I mean, by the time this film came out, probably 40 years. Because it was huge back at the turn of the the 20th century, you know, stories about the costume parties and such that the various, the wealthy had. So we averaged out to a 5.25 on impact significance, but I'm going to bump my score up to match yours at a 6.5. Because there's something you kind of roughly hinted at, but I kind of forgot in my thoughts on when I I was giving this a score, and that's the infidelity discussion. There's actually a conversation instead of something just kind of beaten around the bush on. I mean, they could have very easily left that subject on the threshing floor because, you know, you've got the blackmail version of this in order to get the entrance point, but the fact that they have a full discussion on his uh, philandering, as they put it, uh, I think raises the level of novelty of this film because it's not something that you would think about for a movie from 1940 to really be openly discussing and trying to take on a, a frankly difficult topic. Yes. All right, classicness, what do you have down? 
Oh, this one was the most difficult topic or subject for me because I had a lot of different thoughts and they were none of them were consistent. Do you want me to go first then? Why don't you go first? I had I have a number that I came up with, but I'm it, it's about as loose and an unform of a number as I think I've had in any film. So we've this is the category that we've really explored the most on. Uh, this isn't a movie that has a lot of big musical scoring connected to it, so the emotionality really comes from certain heights in the movie. And because it was based on a stage play, it's very much played out that way. There are certain points in the movie that are classic, but we've already highlighted several areas in where this movie does not age well. The opening scene, there's some physical abuse that really does not play well in modern context. There are comments of essentially playing at wife-beating and trying to make it a funny moment. There are kind of excuses for philandering and then just kind of working your way around it and everything is just kind of all right. And there are some small pieces that just slowly, smallly chip away at this movie in context of what modern sensitivities are but there are parts of this movie that still work now i ended up giving it a 7.5 partly because you chip away and chip away and chip away but the reason that it really drives it down to a 7.5 for me is the ending is not nearly as effective the second time for me and that was where i ended up doing it one of the layers that you added to this is when you rewatch something, does it have the same emotional resonance or something else? I took a very different approach in how what I remembered and thought about of this film, and the middle portions to me were much more impactful than the ending was. And because the ending has a decent enough payoff, but the first time I really focused on the ending, that the first time through you're watching so much for the plot that you miss all the small things that they put in there, much in the same way, watching this movie the first time, I probably focused so much on the plot that that was the only thing that was there. The second time through, I'm focusing much more on the other small parts, but by extension, then it doesn't work in the same way because I already know the ending, and so the cleverness of it and the kind of small shock value aren't necessarily there in the same way. So I do agree with you. This was probably one of the more difficult. It, frankly, is the most difficult every week, but I ended up with a 7.5. Well, my number was a seven, and the reason I went that way, it, it, actually I had a lower number originally, but again, just the opposite, which is, to me, the uh, scene discussing why and how she ended up choosing who she ultimately ends with played better the second and third time I watched it than the first time, because... Um, I could actually focus on what she was saying and what the emotions were behind it as opposed to the storyline itself. So I had a, just the different attitude for towards that last scene, the marriage or the wedding scene. <clears throat> so I went because I had so many. Just the fact that you talk about this, I mean, it almost, I mean, it was so stereotypical. You know, the wealthy versus the self-made man being George. Um, 
the newspaper reporter being, you know, a, a cynical uh, person willing to compromise integrity at times because of necessity of the story. Uh, the fact that Tracy um, is an independent woman, in order for her to be likable, she couldn't remain independent. She had to be broken down to a point where she was vulnerable and had to have the man to make her whole again. There's just so many aspects of this that it's just kind of like, oh, golly, this is, uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm going, oh, boy, this does not portray things uh, in a very enlightened attitude as it comes to the sexes and the classes. But there's enough redeeming qualities that it was able to rise up from that mediocrity that I noted from the various problems. So that's where I came up with a seven. It was loosely based, but the more I'm talking, I guess the more I'm uh, either holding it firm or actually trying to convince myself that more likely a 6.5. And in fact... I think I am going to change it and go 6.5 after thinking about what I said um, just as far as uh, the overall attitudes towards women and, and the fact that uh, the ultimate decision was is Tracy couldn't be made whole as a independent woman but had to be torn down so that she needed a man to make her whole. So I'll go to 6.5. It's interesting that you put that that point on it, and even though the emotional resonance is better for you, you ended up grading it lower than I did. Honestly, this is probably a better discussion than our congruency on the last couple of shows. Uh, rewatchability, what did you have down? Um, it's a fun film, for the most part. And just the fact that you're seeing a very young Cary Grant, a young James Stewart, and a very young... Uh, Catherine Hepburn. I mean, this is the Stuart before he became more hardened by the rigors of war. I mean, you have to remember when James Stewart, he was an Air Force or Army Air Force pilot. Um, he ended up retiring as a reserve officer in the Air Force as a brigadier general. He just he just came across in this film as being much more uh, likable and innocent than he does in his later films. So to that extent, I just really, I think it's kind of a fun film. It's something you can enjoy watching, not on an everyday basis or every couple of months basis, but, you know, I can watch this every 9 to 12 months easily. It's not a terribly long film, or at least it doesn't feel like it. It's 112 minutes, so an hour 52. And it kind of hits a nice sweet spot. But it's also a movie that I didn't have a problem with when it's been a long week. And I started watching this, I think, Friday night, maybe Saturday night. And it's one you can put on and you don't have a problem kind of sitting through and um, just kind of relaxing to. Even though there's a thinking element to it. So I'm going to knock it down a half a point just for that because I think there's a lot more broad strokes to this. It's certainly not one that I'd be dreading watching or think is a is a tough thing to try and get through. So much to the same point, this is like one of those being 
the film you know connoisseurs or historians that you and I are if somebody hasn't seen the film and it's like one of those that you'd probably suggest or put on when they don't want something that's heavy you know it's one of those nice classic movies it's got um, notable people all over the place in the writing production directing acting etc and it's going to be an easy movie to kind of watch your way through and not really bother anybody so for that i gave it a seven i had uh, an eight so that'll put it at 7.5 so just to recap the categories here we had an eight for legacy we had a 5.25 for impact significance we had a 6.5 for novelty we had a seven for classicness we had a 7.5 for rewatchability in all of the averages, and then a 9.3 for audience score. Uh, so I think this is a generally appealable movie. But that all adds up to a 43.55. Currently placing it on number 28 on the current list. It's about right. All right, so... Any remaining questions for you? No, not really remaining questions. Just a couple of little points in my research. Um, Cary Grant got paid the most of anybody on a salary. He he got uh, like $125,000, which in today's equivalent is like $3.5 million. Um, that's what he required, but he did not actually get one dime of it. Um, he made uh, MGM uh, write the check out to the British War Relief Fund. Interesting. Yeah, this would have been right about that point in time. Um, not quite Battle of the Britain, right, in 40? Oh, yeah. Battle of Britain was, was well underway by 1940. Okay. So. I guess my only real remaining question, I think this movie does a good job of pretty well wrapping things up with the exception of the Liz and Macaulay storyline because you know there's really nothing to do with that at, by the end of the movie but why is George really even in this movie I, I know in the classic sense his character has to be there but you think about some of these modern sitcoms where there's somebody that's uh, they always refer to but is never on screen it's in three notable sitcoms from uh, different decades. So you have Cheers, you have Frasier, and you have The Big Bang Theory. And they all have some similar character that's constantly referred to but is never actually seen on screen. I think if you were to write that movie in 2020, you could very easily do that with George. He's just a guy that's a MacGuffin. He's basically there to drive the plot. But he's given almost no real character background he's just kind of a amorphous blob to play off of he's a placeholder that is driving the plot of the movie not necessarily anything on his own now you're missing the point of george which is george is somebody who came from the lower class and by sheer work hard work determination skill and ability rose up and had a chance to get into the high level of society the 
the birthed class. And really, ultimately, the, the, the moral of the story is that he could never quite reach that level because they were just different than him. Okay, but I never got any of that. They write his character so shallowly, and all of that is subtext. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm sorry. I, I, I just felt being somebody that came from a lower economic strata and had, was worked his way up, I was much more in tune with George, I think, than you were. But, but I thought this could have had another scene where it relates to their relationship, and there never really was anything. His only main characteristic is two scenes. One, to establish that he views her in a worshipping sense. We already read that line. And the other one is that finality of breaking off the engagement at the end of the movie. And maybe you can't simply refer to him off-screen in the same way, although I think that would be a much more creative way of doing the character, because ultimately I think it's a shallow character. Yeah. What you should have had is a more establishing scene between the two of them where they really hammer home what this relationship is and how uh, they interact or what they mean to each other, what he means within the context of the story, or like something that gives him a little bit more relatability. I can see where you're going, but I think you're drawing the conclusion more than they kind of led us to the the water. Okay, maybe. I do have one last remaining question. Okay. Ruth Hussey. I really liked her in this film. I thought she did a really nice job. Not long after this movie... Um, was released she met a, a man who was a i believe an insurance executive out in california and um she married him um and retired from acting and just basically um raised a family and was a wife i'm not finding fault with that but i'm kind of curious in retrospect what her career could have been if she would have stayed in acting i thought she did a really nice job for the role she had and i would have liked to have seen her in more more films yeah i i definitely can see that i think she definitely has more to do in this movie and there's a that great scene i know we didn't nominate it but uh it should stand on its own to a certain highlight the one she has with carrie grant where she seems even more in control of certain situations and herself than even Cary Grant has to that point in the movie. She kind of clearly knows what's going on with Macaulay and uh, Tracy, and she doesn't seem all that threatened by it. So she has a, a certain aloofness that's alluring, and by extension, I I can second your um, curiosity on that question. Well, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, and Bill Paxton, directed by Ron Howard and currently playing on Showtime. So stick around on this feed for that one. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. 
Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.